Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you in the house. We're going to continue in our series on preparing an on-ramp for God. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. We're going to read a large portion of scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Again, the title is Preparing an On-Ramp for God, subtitle, Partnering with God to Build Your House. Of David, it says, Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within a tent of curtains. When Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, verse 5, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build a house for me to dwell in? For have I, have I not dwelt in a house? For I have not dwelt in a house since the days I brought the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from pasturing, from following the sheep, to be the ruler of my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Verse 11. Even from the day that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you when your days are complete, verse 12, and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you and will establish his kingdom. Lord, help us as we study. David had a real passion to do something for God. He had vanquished all the enemies that were threats to the national security of Israel. And he was a fine warrior. I don't know that David could be characterized as one of the best warriors on the planet with respect to skill. Not because he wasn't skilled, indeed he was. But he was so helped by God, you can't tell how good he was on his own. I mean, who chooses as their weapon of preference to go out and fight Goliath? A slingshot. That surely can't be your first option. Yet David, it was his first option. And God allowed that stone to have such, such targetedness that it sank deeply within the forehead of Goliath, perfectly between his eyes, and felled him immediately. And that with some hundreds of thousands of Israelite soldiers on the sideline quaking in fear, thinking, my sword isn't going to do any good. If I go out and fight this guy, he's going to get me. Yet God allowed David the privilege of vanquishing the most credible threat to all of Israel's national security. 
And he was with him, meaning God was with David every place he went. So though he may have been competent, he was aided. And you need to hope that, that people confuse your success with you. That God helps you that much. That much. That people say, they are amazing. Which gives you a wonderful opportunity to say, uh, not me. I mean, I learned some things. I cooperate with the grace of God, but let me tell you how I got here. And David has been helped by God the entire time. And he realizes this. And he has a moment of, of introspection, a moment of reflection. And he's sitting there talking to his buddy Nathan. And he says, you know, Nate, I'm, I'm living in this gorgeous palace. I mean, this is a really nice pad. Lots of rooms, beautiful cedar every place, gold goblets from which I drink. It's amazing, but something just doesn't set right with me. I love my house, but how come I live with such opulence and my God is in a tent? The presence of the Lord as represented on earth is in a tent. The Ark of the Covenant lies behind curtains. Yet I'm in this house. Something didn't right with that. It's, there's too much juxtaposition there. There's, there's got too much disconnect. I know I think I need, to, I need to build my God a house worthy of him. And Nathan, being his buddy, moves out of his spiritual responsibility as a prophetic counselor and just encourages him because he's his friend. Go. God's been with you. Do all that is in your mind. Got to be careful when you encourage your buddies. Got to be careful. You want to make sure that you are hearing from God when you say something with respect to direction for somebody and you aren't just coming out of your own soul because you might direct them the wrong way. You just might. In your compassion and in your affinity, your love for them, you could help them go the wrong way. Don't let your soul get in the way. But David has a desire. He says, I want to build my God something. And this becomes an on-ramp, his desire to do something for God becomes an on-ramp for his own personal family. Nathan leaves and uh, goes into his home and starts to bed down. The Lord says, hey, you made a mistake. Mm, and David's not going to build me a house. It's tough for a prophet to eat crow. I'm just not, especially when you have to go back to the king. Not to, not to just your buddy, but the guy who who has responsibility over your job and could say, wait a minute, I thought you're the prophet who's supposed to say yes and, and you said yes and then you say no. Which one is it, Nathan? I'm not asking you as my friend. I'm asking you as my, my confidant and, and administrative official in my kingdom. Is this a good thing? Nathan got confused. Now he had to go back and say, eh, not now. With you, not ever. With you, not ever. No. The last, listen to me, our democracy tempers the kind of respect that folks used to have for kings because we look at, at every person who's elected as every man. We honor them, but we realize they put on their pants just like us. It wasn't that way with kings. The last thing you ever wanted to do is to come and give the king a bad word. You never wanted to tell him no. 
Fortunately, David was a very benevolent king, but most weren't. And this is why Jesus says, when you're persecuted, rejoice, because you're, you're really fellowshipping with all the prophets of old. Meaning there were some prophets that had to give some kings some bad news, and they didn't survive. Not a good idea to just come up on your own with some bad news for a king. Not a good idea. So now Nathan has to go back and tell the king, no. It's not what the king wants, but he's got to be obedient. And he starts off by having to use some language that is very emphatic because Nathan didn't use the kind of language in the beginning to really put some parameters around his words. In other words, when David said, I want to build a house for my God, Nathan said, go, do all that is in your mind for God's with you. But now God tells Nathan, thus says the Lord, you shall go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord. You didn't use that the first time. But now you're going to have to say every time you have a directive, thus says the Lord. So I want him to understand this is God, me speaking, not you. So he had to be very specific in his articulation. And to, to, to David's desire, God responds like this. He gives him a, a history lesson. Takes him down memory lane. And said, you know, I took you from guarding the flocks. In other words, from obscurity. Who would have ever thought that the next king would be a shepherd? I mean, you got Saul, who is king. And surely one of his sons, maybe, that's where the, the, the royal line, that's where the blue blood started. And yet God took David from obscurity. Would, wouldn't you want to take him from some of the finest schools of government? Got his Ph.D. in international affairs? Maybe from the military academy? He anointed David while he was a shepherd. You talk about obscurity. But God loves to use the insignificant because when he does great things through them, he gets the credit. This is why he liked to use bread. <laughs> Nobody. Listen, spiritually speaking, I was not your first round draft choice. I wasn't up on anybody's board on draft day. When, it, when, when, when draft was over, nobody called my number to sign me as a free agent. I had to knock on people's doors and say, can I walk on and play? I'll just play for free. You ain't even got to pay me. I'll just play. Obscurity happened to be in my middle name. Nobody thought Brett would be anything. And I'm not sure I'm much now. But I was surely less than what I am. Less competent. Less effective. Less fruitful. And so somebody at some point chose me. Obviously, God thought it was a good idea at some point, but somebody saw something in Brett that probably sounded much like this. We don't have anybody else. <laughs> at least we've got him. Let's see what he can do. Obscurity. And I want us to superimpose our life over this moment because I don't know anybody in here that's got blue blood. You didn't come out of the womb with a crown on your head. There's nothing about your life that should shout, I ought to rule. So obscurity is your portion, and yet God has chosen you to do something special. And please do not define special as that which has to fit on a, pul on a stage in a pulpit or sitting on a stool. 
We're not talking about going to the mission field and preaching the gospel and dying in glory through persecution. Those things are absolutely worthy of credit. But some of you are stay-at-home moms, and you're doing a fabulous job with your children. You're training them. You're teaching them. You're forming character in their life. You're helping them understand not just the difference between good and bad, but good and best. You're watching them grow in their spiritual understanding of who they are in God and what they need to be. And your life is one that will be worthy of being written about because you are doing the will of God. Now, I didn't say that anybody would read it. <laughs> Nobody may want to know what a housewife did, but it will be worthy of being written about because God's talking about you in heaven. What man regards is not what God regards. God can choose you from obscurity, from what man looks at being little or nothing, and take you and make you into something amazing. I took you, and I have been with you wherever you have gone. Do you know how you got here today? Because God's been with you. Now, you have not been with him. That's documented. For sure, no question about it. You have missed it. You didn't get on the right bus. You said, I'm not going right now. You've departed from his ways. When he said, turn right, you went left. God has been with you, though. And he has had your back. And if he had not been with you, you wouldn't be here. I'm not talking about here in this church, though that has some relevance. I'm talking about here on the planet. God has protected you. He's had his hand on your life and has brought you through stuff you couldn't have got through on your own. And though you didn't know how to find him in the midst of your darkness, he found you and brought you through. Never ignore that in your moments of, of feeling like he doesn't care. Where is he? Tending toward believing that he's neglectful of you. Never forget that he has watched over you every day of your life. And you are less insane because of it. You're not all right. But you'd be much more wrong. You'd be much more wrong if he had not been with you. David, I've been with you every moment. And I've vanquished your enemies. I've cut them off. And God has done a beautiful job of defeating the power of the enemy in our life. Does the enemy have power? Yes. But with respect to whether we obey or not, he only has power that we give him. He tempts us. He lures us. But we are the ones that have to stray and follow. He has no power in the soul that is, that is, that is unmitigated because God has come and broken it through the cross. And as a result of what the cross has done and defeating the power of sin and death, greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. And as a result, I can say no to the devil and yes to God. Does that mean he has no ability to, to make me have a bad day every once in a while? No. He still is the ruler of the power of this air. That's what Ephesians says. And so we have to navigate through the difficulty. But in navigating through the difficulty, we find our God like we never had before. And so when we see trials come to us that challenge us every moment to say, how in the world did I get here and why do I have to go through that? James says this in verse 2 of chapter 1, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith 
must come because you have need of endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. You have no idea how much more endurance you need. Well, you know it when things like this come out of your mouth. I can't take it anymore. I just can't take it anymore. I don't know how much longer I can go on. You have need of endurance. So that when you go through the trial, you are able to come out better than when you went in. Don't waste your trials. Because you might have to repeat the fourth grade. If you waste this trial and don't apply the scriptural principles necessary to make you grow through it and come out better than when you went in, you might have to repeat it. Because the whole point is to grow through it. God has been with you. And he has defeated the power of the enemy in your life so that you can have victory on a regular basis. Victory ought to be the standard in your life, not defeat. Took him down memory lane. But then he said this. I'm going to do something for you that's special. Now, the reason he took him down memory lane is he wanted him to know that all that has happened to him has been God. He's participated. But I'm the one who called you out from the shepherd to the throne. I'm the one who's been with you, and I'm the one who's gotten your enemies. I realize you get the credit on the planet, but I'm the one who needs to receive the glory. Now, setting the stage for what he's about to say. And I want you to know, because you had a passion to build me something, and others could have. It's been now over 450 years since the Israelites came out of Egypt. Now, they couldn't have a house. God couldn't have a house in the wilderness. Had to be a tent because they were mobile people. They were nomadic, moving every place. You couldn't build anything. But once they were in the promised land, different story. Not one judge said, can I build you a house? Can I build you a house, God? You know I love it when, uh, when my children do the right thing without me telling them. Any parent, can, can you resonate with what I'm talking about? Yeah. See, when I hear the vacuum cleaner downstairs and mama's taking a nap, I want, who in the world? What has, who is in my house and what did they do with my children? I come downstairs and my 14-year-old is vacuuming the carpet. I said, what are you doing? You're vacuuming. But no, what are you do- Why? Because mama needs help. Come here, boy. Come here to me. Let me hug you. Let me hug you. Because now, hear me, you don't need the law. You get it. You get it down on the inside of you you ain't got to be told to do what's right David didn't have to be told it's not and that's why God said have I ever asked did, did, did you did, did he wasn't correcting David as much as prioritizing David helping him understand what's most important and how he's going to do what he's about to do did I ever ask you're amazing you're doing stuff I didn't even ask for <laughs> Because we do stuff that's right even when we're not told. God says, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your name great like the great men of the earth. I'm going to make your reputation beyond your years. When you are in the grave, they are still going to be talking about you. And I'm going to make your people solid, placed right. They're never going to have to be moved again. Any good leader 
is never satisfied with his own progress if his people lag behind. So this brought courage and encouragement to David to think, you're not just going to bless me, you're going to bless my people. Thank you. Thank you. A good leader is always defined by his people, not by his own progress. Be great, Grace Covenant. Be great. Let Brent be less. And I will defeat all your enemies. So what I have done, I will do. And I'll keep beating them up for you. Promise. Lastly, he says this. And I will build your house. And you will have somebody who will sit on the throne. And if you can read on later, it says, and you will never cease to have someone sit on the throne from your loins. As a result of David's desire to do something great for God, God said, I'm going to do something really unusual for you. And this is why they called the Messiah the son of David. Because he came from the, the loins, the lineage of David. And he holds a throne that he's never going to have to give up. This specific promise came as a result of one, one desire. Let me build you something. We are the beneficiaries of other people's desire to do something for God. None of us stand on our own. On the shoulders of great spiritual giants, we rest. Do you want to have the confidence that even though you are an excellent parent, that God is going to do stuff beyond your parenting to help your children when you're not there. To give them the ability to rule and reign in their circumstances when you can't help them. To confirm the covenant of God in your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren's life because of the desire you have to build him something. Do it. This may not be the only time, but this is a time desire to do something for God that allows you the privilege of constructing something while you do something in the future and see God do something really special. Now David wasn't able to construct and he wasn't able to construct not because a building didn't need, need to be built but he wasn't able to construct because he was a man of blood and war. First Chronicles 28 he recounts and begins to tell his son Solomon and the leaders God didn't let me build because I'm a man of bloodshed and war. And the architect of his house had to be a prince of peace. David set the table for his son Solomon who, who ushered in a reign of peace and prosperity that has never been and never has been since. God had to have somebody who built his house that foretold the kind of builder who would come in Christ. But David did say this in, second, in 1 Chronicles 22, though I wasn't able to build, I have prepared everything necessary to build. And he said with great pains in verse 14 of 1 Chronicles 22, with great pains, the word there is deep affliction, I have prepared for the house of my God. Get this, 100,000 talents of gold. One talent is 100 pounds. I don't know if Fort Knox has that much. That is 10 million pounds of gold. That's what he set aside. One million talents of silver. That's 100 million pounds of silver. 
And he said, bronze without number. Not to mention cedar. This man says with great pains, and this is one of the scriptural justifications for giving till it hurts. With great pain, I set aside this for my God because he was worthy of it. Let us go through the process of feeling the joy of inconvenience for being tasked with the responsibility of building something great for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you. I thank you so much for the example of David. Help us to live in such a way that we can see the same blessing come to us that came to him.